Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Andrew Zinchuk. Andrew, tell me if I get any of these pronunciations wrong. I'm managing partner at Zass Ventures. I really appreciate you coming on the show and just your flexibility and all the scheduling and stuff like that. I really cannot thank you enough for doing this. And just to give people a sense of like to whom we're speaking and why we're having this conversation, maybe you can give us a little bit of your background for some context. And then I want to talk about like the sum total of things that you're working on and the environment in which you're doing that. So can you give us a little bit of your background, please? So I'm a tech entrepreneur, entrepreneur in general. Uh, since my childhood, I uh, had experience with investment banking a little bit. I lived in New York and moved back to Ukraine after Revolution of Dignity in 2014. And basically, since that time, I was working from Kiev, but working on a global projects. I was part of, uh, was actually the first person hired by Israeli Israeli family office. And we scaled to 200 people in six countries and built like VC arm and also ecosystem of startups. Uh, servicing companies and uh, afterwards I had experience running the largest blockchain marketing uh, company in the world who we were recognized as number one in 2018. Who's that? Called ICO Box. Go ahead. ICO Box. Cool. Yeah, it was like pre-COVID stuff. I had 150 people worldwide. We even had staff in, in like 33 cities including Tokyo and Seoul. Oh wow. So it was pretty crazy working in kind of on three continents like uh, Europe, us and then also asia and we were trying to expand to asia in by late 2018 but then as we know all of the crypto winter started <laughs> yeah, so then a little bit. we kind of sized the operations uh yeah it was a kind of a big blow and afterwards i was uh, running a startup incubation program pre-team pre-idea stage i was a spanish chain of incubators scaling across eastern europe and i was a partner for a managing director for ukraine and so we opened operations here and uh, for two years i was running the incubation program so it's pretty cool because we were looking for people with no idea, no team, but willing to do the startup. And it was profiled business marketing and tech, getting yep. them together using like startup lean methodology to help them validate, find the problem, validate the problem, like build this, validate the solution. And then once they had some uh, minimal traction uh, MVP, so we would invest a little bit in them. And it was pretty cool. I had like 1,500 people applying and directly worked for at least six months with like 130, 160 people. So it was a nice stuff. And basically down the road, I started also advising a lot of startups at Antler, at Seedstars. Also here in Ukraine, I'm part of Ukraine Venture Capital Association since 2017. So I was uh, for quite some time witnessing like firsthand our like growth of ecosystem. And eventually like I started the Zest Ventures kind of to take leverage my experience and network like in Eastern Europe. How old are you, Andrew? I'm uh, 33, just 33, or, or <laughs> 33. It sounds like you've been alive for like 400 years. It depends years. how you look. Yeah, can I ask you this? I started 13 working, so, <laughs> and usually I was doing like two, two jobs. So I'm uh, like in the USA joking, like if you have two or three jobs, you're Jamaican. So I'm like uh, Jamaican as well. I don't know what to say about that. That's so good. But it feels to me like you're more like 50 years old and not 32 or 33 years old. You were born and raised in Ukraine, yeah? Yeah, I was born and raised in the west of Ukraine. Then uh, I did my studies, first bachelor and uh, master of arts in the west of Ukraine. But then I did some studies in Canada in the British Columbia Institute of Technology. And then 
I was one of the youngest MBA guys. I went to the US to do my MBA. I was uh, what, 22, 23 years old, and I won this huge scholarship. It was called the Maskey Fellowship Program. So there were 6,000 applicants. Yeah, it was 2012, and uh, there were only sorry, 3,000 applicants, only six seats. Oh, wow. for the scholars and only one for MBA. So basically, uh, and that was the last year of the program. So I was the, like the only, like, and the youngest guy who, who went for MBA on the scholarship. So it was also pre- pretty, pretty cool. I, I want to talk about the current situation in Ukraine in a bit, but before we get there, how would you categorize or summarize kind of the startup ecosystem where you live and in some of the surrounding countries as well. In other words, you've been involved in everything, tech entrepreneur, investment banking, you lived in New York, you worked for an Israeli family office, you've done all this stuff, you know, you've chosen to live. You said you went back home. Did you go home to build the ecosystem, support the ecosystem? Do you know what I mean? Like, how would you qualify it or quantify it? When I went back home from New York, I missed Orange Re- not the Revolution of Dignity. In 2013 to 2014 and i was in new york and i had some i was still running my office in new york and we had offices like in kiev in new york and uh, when the re- revolution started i was uh, like willing to go home but i couldn't so i was actively involved in uh, like organizing all the rallies and we protested in all of the major squares in new york so i was like very active uh, on that scene we also organized the first twitter storm I was doing a lot there, but then I had this sense of like, I haven't done enough and I was not there, like actually on Maidan and uh, I felt like I have to go home. And uh, I came back and basically uh, I was for two years, I was actually volunteering in the most part, like building a startup and volunteering. So we co-founded, it was called Easy Business, the first project. So like idea was worse. Actually, I was supposed to join the Ministry of Economy. And what happened, like, a couple, like, a week prior to that I was supposed to join, like, after interviews and everything, the minister leaves the position. And, the, and here we are, like, a gang of like, seven, ten people with, you know, like, top schools, Western educated, and, you know, Harvard, Oxford, London School of Economics, like, you, you name it, just super smart kids. And yep. like, what do we do now? Yeah, what to do now? And so we decided, uh, but the idea was actually to help the economy, to do, like, deregulation. Yep. And uh, basically, we formed the, the NGO called Easy Business, and we were covering all of the uh, industries. So I was uh, on ch- in charge of uh, deregulation for food production and agriculture. And then uh, after some time I left and was, I co-founded what's called Agro Reforms UA. So we are specifically focused on deregulation and uh, changing the legislation for agriculture sector. And that's kind of what I was involved for two years. And after like burning all of my savings, so like safety uh, pillow, I said, okay, I have to start doing business. And I joined as a corporate entrepreneur, one of the largest corporations here in Ukraine. The owners of the company asked me to launch the, pro- the project, which was just an idea. And it was cross-border e-commerce uh, delivery system. Okay. So they said like, hey, we want to do a cross-border delivery. Why don't you join us? And actually one of the founders of the, the company, he was actually supporting our NGOs. That's how we can get acquainted. Besides, I had like my own project, which I was, <laughs> my idea was kind of stolen by the largest uh, bank here. That happens, was quite so, yeah. funny because... Uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was interesting, and that's how I started doing my startup after like I saw the opportunity here. 
and it was actually like it was big to understand the perspective it was 2000 uh what 14 15 i was doing the startup on uh, so you can uh, go to gas station and pump your car without leaving your car so and i presented to this we have a group of companies here and uh, they have like we're having the biggest bank but they also had the largest chain of gas stations okay. and they were like super outdated they had like 1500 uh, at that point of time uh, gas stations across the ukraine and they had all their own oil refinery but in terms of the service they were all kind of a little bit outdated when i was checking the competitive landscape i was thinking hey with whom to to go the best and it happened friend of mine that uh, i've met uh, actually i was like doing the internship back in the day in uh, boston and i met him in harvard so his relative was actually one of the partners of this, this main guy he told me and he actually ran in this oil business and he told me oh i'm gonna introduce you and i'm gonna you know like everything will be smooth and like when we start talking, I start telling them more and more. So they were like asking me even to go me to their headquarters and kind of disclose all of the technical aspects. And then, then I start smelling it's not good. <laughs> so I have yeah. them disclose on the technical stuff, but they never end up investing in the project uh, on one hand side. But then I, in a couple of months, because they have a lot of IT capacity, money, and basically all of the things needed. So... I like opening the banking app and seeing like, hey, there is this new feature that you can uh, like charge you for, uh, like pay for your fuel. I was like, but it, was, it worked like shit, so they never took off. And now you can do it from like at this point of time in Ukraine, you can do it every time. I want to ask you this though, and it's such a general question, but I really I'm curious about the depth here. So many people want to operate their startup in stealth, right? They don't want to tell anybody about this. They think if they keep it secret that it's going to be okay. And the flip side of that coin is, I just want to do everything in public. Like, what did you learn through that process of just giving away all this technical information? Would it stop you from sharing again? Or do you feel like at some point you just have to be able to out-execute people? And is this something you talk to your investee companies about too? You have to share. I'm actually very profound in terms of being open same here and of course you don't have to give away all of the ip and like kind of all sure. the technical things that you know that make it happen but with the startup it's the idea is worthless uh, to be honest yep. but what's key here is execution right so idea is a coefficient to your execution if you have a great execution and then bad idea it's still, it's still gonna make some money right but if it's an excellent idea you're gonna make billions it just uh, what bridges the gap here so in my case i mean it was a good learning curve to me i i have no regrets but that was kind of my first attempt kind of to do some business in ukrainian market right and then then like this i did this corporate project one then i did another corporate project then i was like joined this family office and i was witnessing our ecosystem and it's growing a pretty steadily uh uh, since that time so what i'm talking in perspective into so we were growing from 20 30 percent and then from 21 from 20 to 21 grew 40 percent year over the year so basically only the war set us back so ukrainian startups they raised uh in 2021 they raised almost uh 800 million dollars so it was exactly i believe it's like 780 yep. uh, million dollars and which is amazing number yes huge right uh, ukrainians uh, we are among 
top 10 unicorn founders in the US, like Ukrainian nationals. Uh, so Can you give me an example? pretty amazing. The most famous would be Grammarly. Wow. Right? Yep. And uh, so now, I don't know what the valuation is, but it's like around $13 billion. Yep. Then like, and we t- I'm talking about like, because uh, Grammarly is not even a Ukrainian business anymore, right? It's all like US registered. So all of the companies we're doing, you like we registered them right in the US and start like trying to take advantage of that market yep. and conquer that. But I'm talking about like Ukrainian founders. And we have like a GitLab, probably all one, like all, everyone who is techie, he, uh, they know the GitLab. And there is two Ukrainian founders and one non-Ukrainian. There is uh, like uh, Vlad Yatsenko from Revolut. He's also have Ukrainian. Uh, we have uh, like People AI, which is very cool. They uh, very cool startup. They enable sales, so uh, they also become a unicorn in twenty twenty one. There is the Genesis. It's a, like a group of IT product companies, yep. like uh, Amazon, ring by Jamie Smirnov. He's also have Ukrainian roots, and we like. Ukrainian unicorns, so we have like 10 now, uh, valued over $80 billion. So and this is huge considering that our ecosystem is still uh, very young, very vibrant. And I witnessed how it was growing like, literally from no incubation programs, no acceleration programs. And the first attempts kind of to establish those entities were like back 2010, 14, but they were not successful for many reasons. And now we we have get it, like we see all of the components of the ecosystem coming together. We have a lot of foreign incubation acceleration programs opening here, like the one I was managing, Demium, and others are hunting Ukrainian startups. So there is a lot of education. Also, what is important that uh, and brings the success here, it's uh, our tech people. So Ukraine has about 250,000 uh, software engineers. And uh, after, uh, and that's the IT industry that's kind of preparing all of these people. So after working for IT outsource, IT product companies with the Western clientele, so they start getting sense of uh, how to do the business on one hand side, but also they're getting a sense of the problems which are the Western markets are facing in the companies, their clients. And then they find this kind of niche and go and trying to go and turn it into the product. So, and that's what I witnessed firsthand while I was managing startup incubation program, right? Because I had like uh, 1,500 people applying and some of, most of them had some ideas what they want to do. And then you just start filtering out and then just validating the best one. So, and then they, that's how it happens. And now with even with recession coming, I think it's gonna even happen better for the ecosystem. Is, the, is there an educational basis for this? And let me just, let me give you an example of what I mean. You mentioned working for an Israeli um, family office. And Israel, depending on how much you know about their startup ecosystem, you should know a lot, right? The technical education in Israel, obviously because of the way the armed forces works, is super strong, right? So everybody goes into the army, everybody gets some kind of really strong technical education, and they come out and start solving these deep tech problems which then they can export to the rest of the world, right? The Israeli market itself is not that big. Six, seven million people, pick a number. Silicon Valley, Boston, same thing. Deep educational institutional background, right? So whether it's Stanford or Berkeley or MIT or Tufts or you know any of these other universities in these clusters, is it the same thing in Ukraine that creates this 
IT center and the center of excellence for building these types of companies? In some sense, yes. It's like yes and no. As comparing to Israel, it's not the military that was driving this yep. uh, request, right? Uh, in Ukraine, we had very good school of math and very... Okay, that's what I want to know. ...therps of uh, like technical aspects, but they were kind of... Uh, more theoretical, yep. but what helped here is actually the growth of IT uh, outsourcing, outstaffing companies, oh. because the government was not regulating the industry. Uh, you have to just understand the Ukraine a little bit and like post-Soviet region. So, you know, with all of the like 90s, with all of the failure of uh, economy, of the collapse of Soviet Union, there was yep. like all the mobsters, like all of the people who were former KGBs or like red directors or managing like plants. So despite all of the business that were like privatization of everything and all tech people like no one cared about them because they were considered as weirdos with a keyboard you know doing something no one could understand right. and that kind of created this kind of uh loop where the people were working doing businesses and at one point of time they actually become so big and no one realized and then they were like hiring and developing all of this uh, workforce and they were getting all the time better and better so ukraine is number three outsource country in the world and is it the really? quality of, uh, of the people is very yeah yeah what are the two above it is it india and what the philippines what is it i don't know what okay that's okay the first one is but like ukraine is not number three wow okay but basically we're competing against india in most of this uh cases but it's it's a little bit different now we're shifting a lot towards kind of the product yep and yeah. uh, like this the more compl complicated stuff and you know like the epam is one of the biggest uh, companies we have, SoftSurf. Uh, there's probably you know, 10 super huge companies that are world-renowned and uh, IT outsourced. So in general, we have 250,000 people working. And again, now it's one of the third largest part of the GDP of Ukraine, which comes from the uh, IT industry. And like until recent, the government was not even touching this. And we still have uh, different taxation, very lower for IT people and IT companies from the, the entire uh, other parts of the economy. But after, you know, people spend some time and get, getting bored on the IT bench, basically, they want to do something. And those who have ambitions, right, they want to do something, yeah. uh, something else. And that's how they come to the startup world. Talk to me a little bit about ZAS and what the thesis is behind starting your own investment company. I mean, it, it feels to me like the path you've taken to get here, building your own companies, doing some investment banking, living all over the world, right? Running the incubation programs. It's begging you, like this path is just begging you to be an investor at some level, no? I mean, is that why you started this? And if it is, what's the thesis behind it? Why are you better at this than other people? And what are you trying to accomplish with it? It's, there's a couple layers uh, yep. to answer your question. First of all, I decided to move because I was switching, you know, sides from <laughs> of the table from my investment side in the, the Israeli family office. And then being most of my background, I would say, in the terms of the startup ecosystem, I'm operator, yep. right? Uh, because I, if it's either you run a startup incubation acceleration program or you're an entrepreneur, still qualified as operator. So most of my experience comes from this part. And I've done it basically from zero, from idea to some some level, and then I have also like a good managerial experience managing large large teams and multi-million projects. So I know what it takes. Then another part of my experience that moved me towards kind of doing the fund was uh, actually accelerated incubation program, because I was I went to the earliest stage. 
I mean, it was, it's a lot of hustle. It's like baby garden, right? You have to change the <laughs> yeah. diapers to entrepreneurs. I mean, uh, <laughs> technically, right? Yeah. Because every time everything goes wrong, but the part and what is like my, I would say, secret sauce is if you work on early stage, it's all about people. It's not about like metrics, of course. I mean, it's a lot of people can read metrics and see if it's there or not, right? But in this short period of time, I've seen all of the kind of possible ways that the companies would fail. And we try to avoid all of the failures. Right. Because when you're trying to put three or five people that never knew each other yeah, it's hard. before into a team and make a team out of them. And we saw like, you know, the team of four people with the best education programs, like, you know, going like Oxford executive and like, you name it, right? That they fail and never accomplish a thing because there was like ego fight. Even though you would see like, oh, this guy is good on finance. This one is operational excellence with one of the biggest investment banking uh, banks here in Ukraine, like with over 1 billion under management. And then like, you know, the, the team was like excellent people and it just did not take, you know, then you see and like very senior people. I mean, like, you know, like 40, 45 uh, and uh, in terms of the experience, right? But then you see like those uh, recent graduates with like with eyes shining and also like working crazy hours, you know, staying in the office just to work extra long and like out beating their ass. So. This experience of uh, like working with the team, getting like those intrinsic core of the team, it's actually something that uh, is making a success or like make it or break it in the early stage. And that's why like, and then because of the also being in the early stage, I've built my network across acceleration programs, early stage VCs, uh, angel investors, like everyone who was above the food chain, yeah. so-called in our startup jungle. So I was like, okay, uh, I don't want to focus my time anymore on the earlier stage, like building the teams because it's a lot of uh, problem and a lot of like, and this, even though like uh, success rate was pretty good in my incubation program, we had out of in every batch, we were, we would form like uh, four teams, like four strong teams. Mm -hmm. And out of them, one team would succeed. So they are still going, they're still raising money, they're still developing. So I think it's, for this stage, it was pretty uh, great success, but it was like too much hassle for me. I said like, okay, I want to do something next, but it gave me this kind of edge. So basically for Zaz, I have two funds that I'm raising right now. Okay. So the first fund is a seed fund on Eastern European startups targeting the US market. Uh, with this one, we just a little bit on pause. So I'm waiting until the war is going to be over. Uh, so we can continue fund fundraising because I, I'm stuck in Ukraine. I cannot travel. Uh, I, may, I might go for a week, but it's also a big problem to get the permission to get out of the country. Is it really? Like uh, it takes like, a, yeah, because we are under the martial law and right. takes, you know, up to a month to get the permission and you have to, you cannot do it in a startup world. You have to like, something comes up, you have to fly, right? You gotta go, yeah. You cannot wait for one month and to see, uh, like <laughs> what happened to me actually recently, I was invited, my partners in Romania, uh, they are the largest acceleration program. And I mentored the startups and I met there is like, uh, I know all of the teams. So amazing guys. And like they're number one in the Romanian market. And they invited me for their demo day. And there was also a big conference and some GPLP event to, to pitch the fund. And I was trying to get this permission and I still didn't get the final answer. So they were uh, kind enough. So they 
allowed me the only one person to pitch online (laughs) in the so they did the whole infrastructure just for me to pitch and then what i'm saying so like this one uh, this fund is on pause but eastern europe and the opportunity with the eastern europe is actually the valuations they are way lower than in uh, In the west west of uh, western europe or even in the in the states and what is very interesting is actually that Eastern European startups seed stage, we, uh, if we talk, they produce five times more uh, revenue per invested dollar than a US B2B startups. Yeah. And this is like McKinsey research. So this is a very good opportunity. And Eastern Europe has very cool startups in general. So I want to talk about this for se- in a second as well, right? But this idea that they make five times as much money for every dollar of invested capital, it almost makes you feel like they're five times undervalued. I mean, if you think about the way simple mathematics and simple um, algebra works, right? The idea is if a normal U.S. company would get a million dollars of investment, then the Ukrainian company is getting $200,000 of investment. They're both at the same stage. They're both building the same thing in a way. And if the revenues are exactly the same, then by definition, they're going to be five times more capital efficient. I'm sure there are other reasons too. I'm simplifying just to make the point to people. I'm curious though, what is your connectivity like in the United States, right? You're trying to build companies from Ukraine, seed stage invest in them in Eastern Europe, but with a target of the United States. Like logistically, that's just got to be hard in regular times. I'm just curious, like what your connectivity is like and how that impacts the stuff you're trying to build and then import export to the US, if that makes sense. All of the companies, they started from like what we work on a siege stage. They have already teams here. Yep. I have one very cool startup. Uh, he is Ukrainian founder. Then he moved to uh, Finland. He got some uh, equity fragrance from the government. So they technically even registered oh, wow. uh, in as a Finnish company. But they target it's a B2B marketing company. Uh, but they have all of the revenue coming from the US market. And eventually they will change the domicile to US market. And one of the founders will uh, also move the there, yeah. founding team will actually change the country. Uh, move, yeah, move to US. It's, and it's a natural kind of way of things to happen. And it's fine with us. We have uh, very good connections there with a uh, local US ecosystem, with VCs who can co invest and I can look at our deal flow right. or invest after us. And uh, basically, I gathered a very strong team of uh, partners uh, that can help in marketing side. I have uh, Dave, who, who's my, he used to work for me as my CMO, uh, but he's a marketing wizard. He, he was a guy behind the success of Harry Potter franchise. Uh, so <laughs> that's a was, big call. But the, fir- the first, yeah, yeah, the first two were losing money, and then his team took on, and they did it from the, like the losing money to the most lucrative uh, movie franchise in the world. Yeah, and right. now from uh, for the last like four years, he works as a fractional CMO for six companies, uh, helping them to get to Series A. Uh, so that's Dave. I have Vali, who is tech entrepreneur from Romania with three exits. Uh, now he moved to California. And he was actually a guy behind the Intel and Google team launching the Android's first version. He has like, and he's still coding. So we even had our own. He was start building a game for his son, and it then turned into entire kind of the, the, the. It was a casual game, thanks. We'll call it thanks for fun. But when we took it, we didn't even raise money for that for that game, and it's, you can play it, find it on Discord called Thanks of Fun. It's a pretty cool one. So now he's have multiple games and he had previous experience with Playtica. And uh, they have uh, a couple, I have my partner here, the only one guy in Ukraine 
uh, Artem. So we were we met actually at this logistics company that was launching the project. So he's a chief digital transformation officer. And then he was working with me as a head of incubation program at uh, Incubator. And now I, he also now is a partner, one of the large and CDTO also at largest development uh, company in Kiev, but also works as a uh, venture partner with me on this one. So I have like various established team mm-hmm. and have some couple people who are also joining uh, and helping on different sorts. And I've also built a network of about 50 people with you know, big tech uh, companies experience, uh, founders like Series A and above who have like hands-on experience and going to give back. But to step back, and this is all about like seed and right? It's about seed companies helping to move to the US. Yep. But if we talk specifically about Ukrainian startups, the situation uh, about valuations is even more crazier. Yeah. So. In general, if we talk about uh, one of the reasons why there's so a uh, cost of doing business and, you know, we just uh, get used to, to be efficient in every dollar and not wasting on, you know, like uh, in the crypto times on the limbo and on the <laughs> all, all of the crazy stuff. But we talk to Ukraine and what actually brought me to now refocus my attention only in, in Ukrainian founders was the beginning of the war like about you know there's different numbers but about 10 million Ukrainians left Ukraine 10 million right and now there's yeah 10 million but it's a country uh, so, of only 45 million people approximately yeah 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 even before like uh, at the time we uh, got uh, out of the Soviet Union there were 52 million of Ukrainians officially what year I was still, that like recall all this, you know, commercial, 1990, 1990, 1991. So there was like 52. And then a lot of Ukrainians, there's like big diaspora. In, actually, the biggest Ukrainian diaspora is in Canada, that we have in the US, we have in Australia. Well, of course, there's like Italy, Portugal, England, Poland, you name it. So, and now with the war, we have another 10 million Ukrainians living. And a lot of them are actually startup founders. So, and in the last year, we are now sitting talking from the December standpoint of view, but since, you know, the war started January 24th yep. and I was kind of volunteering, but then one kind of, I understood where things going. So I started talking back to the startups. So I, I did like over 250 interviews of the startups. Okay. So like pitching, uh, pitching events, like you name it. At some point of time, I get, I was able to sort those things, uh, the startups that actually were able to regain the traction or get the new traction in Western markets. And Ukrainians are now everywhere. So I was like, okay, we have to do something about this because the ecosystem uh, got a big punch because of the war. No one is investing in Ukrainian startups. And the teams, those I was spoken, it were quite successful. There's uh, teams uh, fully remote, not in Ukraine. There are teams that have mixed team like uh, Europe or US and Ukraine, you name it, right? They are facing two problems. First of all, their traction is not strong enough to raise a round, like a proper round, right? And the second of all, if they have part of the team in uh, Ukraine, right. most of the VCs would consider it Risk. like uh, super risky and it would go to their com- compliance. But me, basically, I'm sitting here in trenches. I'm here in a bunker and I see ev- how everything works. And I mean, we are able uh, to work now. Everyone is buying like uh, electric generators to keep keep the stuff going, right? And buying Starlinks, I believe the Ukraine will be number one in, uh, in Starlink, Starlink yeah. users yep. uh, in, in the world. But it's just, 
yeah, it's a, but so we were agile, and those startups actually they they need some uh, kind of support. So I was uh, thinking like, hey, there's a good opportunity because why don't we provide them a bridge financing and then not big checks like up to 100k, like angel investment in tranches per KPIs. So we could be sure that, you know, if the team is in Ukraine, of course, there is extra risk, but there's a way to mitigate the risk. If we set the KPIs and unlock the financing in tranches, so that's why we minimize our risks as a, on investment side. And then it will help them and help them actually using my experience and my partner's experience as a founders, operators and investors to help them kind of get this traction better and prepare them for next round and help them to raise the proper round. So let's say if we're talking about valuations, crazy numbers, man. In Ukraine, on PC, we had from $600K to $1.5 million. That's like pretty big range, but it's freaking low. It's kind of, and with the war, it's even lower, yeah. right? So I was talking about fewer money. So let's say we're not going to be skimming off, of course, uh, the, the founders in, and doing the uh, the, the harmful things but yeah, let's, let's say you keep it on the same way yeah yeah it's it's a bad thing it's a bad investment and it hurts you in the Hurts also everybody. in the end because uh yeah yeah if the founder is not motivated you're losing no. everything yep. because he's gonna just you're not gonna run his business right so and that's the another problem with the ecosystem and uh traditional investors here they they think with the different categories but we're gonna maybe jump to the topic a little bit later so why don't we help them, right, to get the better traction? And once they have the numbers right, and we prepare them for the beauty show, help them to raise the proper round. So let's say we invest on the safe with a cap, uh, you know, one million. Even say, let's call it two million. Two million bucks. Pre-seed, yeah. right? Yeah. In the U.S., pre-seed average is six million. I was gonna say. So within one year, in one year, we can have uh, put on. On books growth of three uh, three three x yep. i mean where you can you can get better so and that's the kind of the whole idea so i want now to do i call it uh brave ukraine fund and the the thesis are very simple it's to fund ukrainian founded startups with the traction in uh, western markets either it's uh, eu or us and help them to raise uh like a next round What's and the... that's our value value What's the response you're getting from investors now on that, from LPs now on that, right? Obviously, you, you pitched remotely before. You said you can't travel to the normal LP events. But I feel, and again, I don't know this, right? And maybe we should back up a little bit. If Ukraine became independent from the Soviet Union in 1990, 1991, I was there. I remember the Berlin Wall falling. Like, I'm 57 years old, right? So whatever that was, 30 years ago, I was 27, right? So... I remember it very clearly. But your parents must be just a little bit older than I am, right? Because my daughter's younger than you, but I started late. So if your parents are in their 60s, I'm curious what that generational change looks like to you. Because your parents grew up, I'm guessing, as citizens of the Soviet Union. And then in 1990, everything kind of felt like it was getting way better for everybody, even inside of Russia, to be fair. But now I feel like it's come back full circle. What is the mindset like? Not just the war part, which is scary as shit, and we can talk about that too in a second, but like, what's the mindset like of like, do we really have to go through this garbage again kind of thing? Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's, this is actually a very interesting moment. A mindset of people, of uh, those who my parents' age, 
and then those who are teenagers now it's yep. like aliens comparing to dinosaurs or like uh, really talk early to me age people tell me why the, uh, i mean now people care like uh, teenagers they care about like value investing and they buy stuff in what they believe so they were like eco-friendly and they were all like self-aware and they you know it's crazy we have uh there it's called the project it's, uh, it's called urban 250 and urban 500 so it's a uh, urban 250 started in a, a city called uh, ivano-frankivsk in the west of ukraine yep. so 250 people gave one thousand dollars and they started a social responsible cafe or restaurant so 50 percent of the revenues they give away to the social projects and they did they vote what to do with the money like either to do some renovation or some kindle or kinder playground or you name it yep and then the same project was launched in kiev only with 500 people invested one thousand uh, dollar and that's that's amazing and there's a lot of like uh, a lot of creativity is going on people doing a lot of brands and people start buying a lot of ukrainian even i switched i like all of this fancy you know uh, italian brands and now i'm just buying ukraine and they see this like t-shirt on me from my hometown uh the president is very the same one i said like okay we have to kind of support each other at this point of, of time man. yeah ukrainian ukrainians are very creative and on a general landscape with the war you know there is this phrase that the death of one person is a tragedy but there's uh, thousands it's statistics right so it's hard to say it but this war is actually helping us a lot because with every revolution kind of we were getting more kind of and it was more the younger people coming and understanding like don't having this experience of right. the soviet union and uh, don't having those pro-russian uh, kind of feelings and having to travel to to the west so they were like we were picking up a lot of this uh kind of movement towards the west the war for us started eight years ago it's not like it started you know on, yeah last uh, february January, January, yeah. january 24th right but it's for eight years and with russia taking like donbass and uh, region and crimea, crimea it helps us a lot because they took six million of people who in general were pro-russians and it's like taking you know it's like you're choking you're sinking you had something on your neck that is dragging you down so for us in terms of uh, politics we get uh, we i mean it's bad of the territory and bad of all of the people who believe in the country but in strategic way we, we were relieved and we could vote for everything like pro pro western pro european to kind of change more uh, in terms of uh, like economy and of course and then the social contract is also changing because now after the war and even with the war no one is will be tolerating like corruption and right. you know the, the contract between the government and society it will change and will be like super different if i just was reading uh, actually occasionally today an article on the stats for uh, what people stand for so the before 2014 there was like 50 percent of uh, people were of ukraine we're still kind of very friendly to Russia. They liked Russia, like no one cared that much. We were like, right? Even though the Russians were like trying to kill us for centuries, they, during the Holodomor, the starvation, they killed 10 million of Ukrainians. And my grandma, my grandma still have the experience of that time. I mean, 10 million, they just starved to death while they were exporting the crops and taking everything. At the time Ukraine joined uh, Russian empires, there was 82 or 90 million people, right? 
And after the Soviet time, we left with 52. Where are the freaking 30 million of Ukrainians gone? Where did they like, go? They were destroying us as, as a nation. So this war was inevitable, to be honest. But the thing that they started with the east of Ukraine actually helped us. Now, only 3% are in favor of Russia. And it's going to be like a fifth column for Ukraine. But, you know, they everyone who was pro-Russian, they either left to Russia or they went to fight for Russia against Ukrainians and they were killed or will be killed. Who Those who were helping Russians as a Russian activists, now they either again left or, or are caught by our Ministry of Internal Affairs right. and Special Services, right? So we kind of cleaning out our house from all of this Russian Nazi shit and everything that was involved. So I'm super happy. It's painful. I have friends fighting. I have one of my businesses fully dedicating to, uh, to the war. It's like working pro bono. We are fixing cars for like SUVs for the military that are fighting on their front lines. And it like it works like from the day one. And I, I like just sponsor pay the salaries for the people, but we do it. We fix like a dozen cars per week. And it's just kind of given to this effort. How has the mindset changed since the date in January when this part of the war started? Which, I mean, the whole thing's scary, right? But there are different levels of fear as well, right? And you said you're, I don't want to use the word happy, but you're, you said it was inevitable. And you also believe that there's a cleansing, a cleaning out going on of like, well, if you believe this thing and if they, what they did in the East with Crimea and stuff, that's okay because those people were pro-Russian. But those people are now becoming smaller and smaller. It's now a very small percentage of them. So it's giving, what's the right word? It's giving credibility to this sort of pro-Ukrainian thing inside of its own country. But at the beginning, it's got to be super scary when like tanks roll into the country and as you said, missile attacks and stuff like that. Does it feel better today as we come close to the end of 2022 that we may come out of this and there was a lot of damage, a lot of killing and I love this phrase you have, like when one person dies, it's a tragedy, when a thousand people die, it's statistics. The more like I think about right. it, the just the scary is, but is the mindset better today than it was back in February? Of course. And it's, it makes me, be, besides all of the tragedy on the personal level, yep. on this like kind of, if we look uh, on the horizon of 10, 50 years, 100 years for Ukraine, it's a unique chance, first of all, finally to get rid of russian uh, kind of grips yep. and russian mindset in the country and what's going on here now we had the biggest fifth column here in ukraine which was a russian orthodox church and now our special uh, forces it was a ministry of interior affairs they are doing raids on those churches and they finding like pro-russia propaganda they finding guns they finding weird people yeah. probably some of the special forces and they clean out this so basically all of the people who were going to Russian churches, uh, now they actually switching to Ukrainian church, right? So we fixing our like religion. No one will be brainwashing people on the religious matter. We doing all of the decommunization. So we change the name of the streets. We're taking all of the way, uh, all of the monuments. In Odessa, they finally, after third attempt, I believe they changed uh, they took away the monument of uh, Ekaterina II. Then. Empire, the emperor of the Russia. Yeah. After third attempt, but they did. And before, I mean, I was in Odessa so many times, and the way they were saying, "Hey, we are not Ukraine. We were just Odessa is Odessa." They have a special sense of humor, right. and they were not given like they, they felt they're like super special as a, as a city within the country. But now they're like all pro-Ukrainian. 
and like all of their habits, like everything, like people who are speaking from their entire life. So in Ukraine, it's super uh, interesting situation when I'm dating a girl and she's speaking Russian to me and I speak to her Ukrainian and no one was giving a damn about like, yeah. you know, it was okay. No one was giving yeah, this as much of attention. Yeah, now everyone shifting to Ukraine, uh, to Ukrainian language. And uh, my girlfriend recently said, she's like, oh, why should I speak Russian? It's irrelevant anymore. Like the country is like, is going to be worse than uh, North Korea. Like, why should I speak this language, right? right. So, and even though she was uh, like, uh, from the day one, she was speaking Russian. So everyone, it's changing on everything pro-Ukrainian now, like on television, before it was a big problem with also with books uh, and television, everything was in Russian. If you would go to a bookstore, every like 90% was pro-Russian, for, not pro-Russian, I mean Russian, Russian, English, yeah. Russian literature. And the, the same with the music, with the, you, you name it. But we put special laws that there was like a mandatory to have some quote of Ukrainian. And now it's everything is Ukrainian. You cannot hear like uh, in the public transport or in the restaurant or like nightclub. There is all of this Ukrainians getting like. So finally, what I'm trying to to conclude is that in 1990s with independence, we get the country, but we didn't get the solidified nation. And yeah. what puts us apart from the Poland, right? Yeah. Because you had and the country and the nation. Yep. Now we have in the nation and nation is awoken. A lot of people with the bombs and they see what the horrors they did in Bucha, in Erbin, in all of the other parts where Russians occupied the territory of Ukraine. We find in this mass graves, all of the story of raping woman, elderly child, like yep. all of the craziest stuff. People are waking up and they finally understand who is, uh, who is Russia and that we have to fight. Even there, we, uh, Russians, uh, there is a intern, like kind of report so uh, uh, that the Russians separated Ukrainians into poor uh, parts. And those who will collaborate, those who, who basically, they can be co collaborating with them, those who can be uh, kind of frightened to shut the mouses. And the first uh, was to eliminate. And they were going to eliminate every uh, participant of Orange and the Revolution of Dignity. So it's a millions of Ukrainians and they, yeah. they would do it. They would do it the same way that they did in uh, Belarus. They will use fa facial recognition, the latest technologies to run through the recordings of those times and find those people. Can you imagine how many people they, they would kill? Like, so that's for, for us, it's a fight for the freedom for the life. It's not like, uh, yeah, you yeah. know, this, it's a different uh, story. So as we come into 2023 and after this, horrific experience in 2022 what's your prognosis i mean look i read the news but i don't believe most of it you're there can you talk about two things for me if you still have time and that is the first of all sure. like how how has your day-to-day -day life changed i really just it sounds like a simple question but i don't think it's that simple and then the second thing is what's your view are you still going to be living in a bunker in six months or do you feel like this thing is running its course and that as you come out as like a new nation as a new country again just based on some of the things that you've said that now that you have the nation that now it's going to be empowered to do things that are even bigger and better and from an investment standpoint just to get it back to the to the vc the early stage the ukrainian companies and the eastern european companies that are building stuff for the us do you feel like all that stuff comes back even better than it was before 
Uh, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well then I guess I can let you go. No, seriously, tell me, how does your day-to-day change then? How does it feed into this other stuff we just talked about? On a personal level, first of all, I, I don't know if you caught it on the beginning of the conversation, but I told you that the feeling of the personal security is out, right? Because with all of the missile strikes, with the drones, you understand that every time it can hit anywhere because they're not fighting against the army, they're fighting against the nation. And uh, it was... Kind of, in the beginning, it was kind of scary and we were afraid, but then you have to accept it because you cannot run to the bomb shelters like uh, three, four times a day and two right. times a night because otherwise you cannot operate. And you just understand, you kind of, okay, what are my odds that you're going to hit me here? Okay, right. not that, that big, right? And you kind of uh, keep going, even on the Independence Day when we were under airstrike air alarm for an entire day, I didn't went to the bomb shelter. I'm not saying everyone to do this, but that right. was my personal decision. I said, like, okay, I keep going. This is this is not safe, but I keep going. I just want to live my life. I appreciate the moment of it, and and I'm aware of what can happen. But I'm not gonna uh, let them fear. Let them kind of stop my life. Again, uh, second of all, it helped me to read more because always all of the blackouts. Like, like and when the blackout uh, starts, so the cellular system is also going down. So we don't have the LTE usually. And with even the 3G, it also works like pretty shitty. So you, sometimes you're not even uh, able to send the message. So I actually uh, rec- realized that I have a Kindle. So I start reading more because the regular books are not good. That's kind of, on a, which is very good. Yeah. Sorry, can I ask you this? So when I was in Tokyo for this earthquake in 2011, God, it feels like so long ago. And in some ways it feels like yesterday. But right after the earthquake, right after two, three, four hours afterwards, right? Like I couldn't even call my family. And part of the reason why was because the government kind of just took over the cellular airwaves, right? They just said, nobody else can use it because we need it for an emergency. So we're going to block it. Like there were other ways to communicate, obviously texting and you know, I could send emails and stuff like that, but you couldn't make a phone call because nobody could, nobody could use the system. Is it like that there? And what is it like when you get together with your friends and family? Do you know what I mean? Because if everybody's scared, like you said, you just made this decision, like, I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to go for it. I know it's dangerous. But what is it like when you get together with your friends and family? And some people are just like scared shitless constantly, which makes sense, right? How does that work? I think most of the people came to the same decision I did, but uh, it took every, every person different point of time. I was at this, this level at early, uh, you know, March, mid-March. You just said, so I said like, okay, after screw it, I'm doing this. I thing. said, I mean, I was doing this for like, I moved when the, the Kiev was under attack, so I migrated to the west of Ukraine, to my home city, to, to be with the parents. Yep. And then it was all of and we were, were having several hits on the city. It's called Lutsk, uh, because we have the, one of the biggest military air, air bases. And uh, it was scary. So then every, every time was the strike, so we were like running to the bomb shelter. Now we have the app, which can tell you what is flying, if it's a drone, if you... So, also, our air defense get used to it. And, and people also kind of, I believe most of them uh, came to the sense that you have to come uh, live and start uh, being afraid. But for different people, it took different time to kind of realize this. So now it's what is very funny when we have a blackout and uh, sometimes we like 
before the recent hits, we were having the blackouts uh, like uh, scheduled. So, you know, like four hours and I'm going to have it here. You open the app or you Google like the schedule and you and my day was like, OK, I was changed like from home between home office and one of the, my favorite restaurants like uh, that would be like three locations per day that would change for four yep. hours. I would and that would be my like regular working. Now was the recent hits. They have there is still a big lack of energy in the system, so we have uh, scheduled hours. We have unscheduled. We have the like a gray zone where the electricity might be or not might be as right now. But fortunately, LTE is working, so we're able to. I was going to ask you, what are you on now? We were actually not. Yeah, I'm on LTE. Yeah. And, but which is pretty surprising, but it's super cool that it it's working. Right. And then there's like the hours that you don't uh, have the electricity. Also, I <laughs> I live in a top floor, so I have to walk a lot of stairs. So which also is good for my health. <laughs> but also I had to put because all of my apartment is I mean, and this is like you're doing like per day, like up to 100, uh, you know, 20, 150 floors. And that's a lot like <laughs> it's like serious Stairmaster stuff. <laughs> oh, I, I, but I, yeah, yeah. But now I recall like uh, I, I, I I'm not even losing the breath when I'm kind of getting to my floor, but also what's different when the electricity is out and you like I am all of my apartment is electric based, so I bought like a camping uh, kind of this yep. uh, gas. the gas thing Kerosene. where you can hit the stuff. Yep. So uh, yes, yeah, so but like, yeah, so it, it's pretty cheap, but uh, at least I can hit the water, get the coffee, you know do some uh, cereals in the morning or something so that's only like kind of ba basic level in terms of the kind of the fund itself and the startup ecosystem i think there's going to be a huge boom yeah uh because after the war for, for several reasons first of all the um, uh, it market changed with the COVID and with the war uh before it was uh employee market and people were changing jobs, like, well, you know, getting like just jumping jobs, getting like every time $1,000 plus and yeah, so yeah. on and so forth. Now, because of the companies lost a lot of clients and the global recession, like blah, 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 it's employer market. And a lot of people will be out of the jobs or already out of the jobs. And they still have to some kind of do something. They have savings and they will be the, only, the best way to do it. They, what they know, right? And they yeah. know how to code. So they will be building some stuff. Uh, that's one of the driver of this second driver, which will be is actually a lot of funds will stop. Uh, so Russia lost their market. No one's going to even, you know, there is a saying, I wouldn't touch her with a stick. <laughs> so no one will touch Russia with a stick. So all of the money that were going supposed to go to Russia. Now they will be redirected across the Eastern Ukraine, uh, Eastern Europe. And Ukraine will be one of the key markets here. There is already like two funds, uh, big funds that uh, have already claimed that they're raising uh, money for the Ukrainian startup market. There will be a lot of like infrastructure projects. And of course, like the closer it will get to the end of the war, the more investors will appear because sure. you understand that you have depreciation assets. And what before, if you would compare like Ukraine even to Poland, for the same dollar in the Poland, uh, you would have the same stuff in Ukraine, the same asset for 80 cents or 70 cents before the war. Now it's going to be what, 20, 30? Right. So it doesn't matter if it's, uh, I mean, we're speaking like, uh, you know, hypothetical figures, but the, the sense is there, right? So 
a lot of investors will be coming here and buying all of the infrastructure businesses, getting invested in businesses like uh, private equity deals or you know like infrastructural projects. I'm talking to several people who are raising like crazy you know a billion dollar fund, seven hundred million fund to infrastructure to do like critical stuff like yeah. you name it build roads build hospitals so, all that kind of stuff yeah all sorts there will be all need for rebuilding uh, everything from like all of the like uh, bridges roads hospitals you name it and building like houses because a lot of houses will be destroyed and the same was going to happen to actually uh to vc investments in the ecosystem so there were like there is a lag in investment because of this year and then the closer it's going to get, the more it's going to be crowded. So a lot of money will be here. But the time is actually now because the things are pretty stable. Of course, I mean, it's not over yet, but believe my gut feeling is and what I get from Intel that everything should be over by like mid of summer or September. So then it will be like officially everything is done. At Next least year, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It might happen faster. You never know, but right. that's what in my schedule. So, and the time is actually now. So it's time to invest now in the startups to get in the best deals. And that's what I'm trying to do with the fund. And if you want to also kind of, and it's like actually amazing opportunity to do three things at a time, right? Of course, uh, we have to be pragmatic and business is about money. And of course, so it's like make, make money, be healthy Ukraine. And three, it's to get the, to tell Russia to go <clears throat> itself, right? <laughs> so it's like, what can you do better with your like angel check? You can, you know, invest in a one startup or you can invest in the fund and get it, your investment to be diversified along with like 30 startups that I'm planning to invest right. and get two things as a bonus and feel yourself uh, check that you're also doing something amazing with your money, not just, you know money about the money. Andrew, let's end with that message. That's really great. I cannot thank you enough for doing this. Andrew Zinchuk, a managing partner at Zas Ventures. Thank you so much at ZAS. Thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And also I'm going to share the link for my fund so you can reach out to me. And also if you want to help to fix the cars, SUVs for our soldiers that are fighting on the front end, also going to leave the link for donations because this is super important yep. uh, and uh, you know the, the, the faster we get rid of Russian Nazis the, the better will be for the entire world and the last but not the least my the macro prognosis is that Ukraine will win Russia will fall apart and the world will become a better place <laughs> <laughs>